The Institute of Art and Ideas is excited to announce Closer to Truth as an official partner for our upcoming How the Light Gets In Festival at Hey on Why, happening this year, May 24th to 27th. Closer to Truth examines humanity's deepest questions with the world's greatest thinkers, from Nobel laureates and renowned scientists to theologians and best-selling authors. For 20 years, Closer to Truth has explored the deep questions of cosmos, consciousness, and meaning. This year, host Robert Lawrence Kuhn journeys to new depths with their philosophy of biology season, exploring topics like evolution, race, alien intelligences, sex and gender, and much more. Get early access to full episodes from this brand new season by registering for a free membership at their website, closertotruth.com. Discover the fundamental issues of existence, engage new and diverse ways of thinking, and seek out your own answers with Closer to Truth. Thanks for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast, bringing you philosophy for our times. Here at the IAI, we're committed to taking philosophy out of dusty books and lecture halls and into the heart of public life. If you enjoy this debate and want to carry on the discussion, or watch over a thousand more debates and talks on all the latest issues in philosophy, science, politics and arts, visit IAI.tv. Remember to subscribe and review on iTunes. What's love got to do with it? Interesting question. On my right here I have um, Helen Croydon, who really has left no stone unturned in her pursuit of what love has to do or not to do with the human condition. Ukrainian wife swapping, you name it. But most importantly... Is that I didn't great? actually do the No, 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 no <laughs> far from it. <laughs> you are really, really exploring and merging it out. But the, the, the important was that your book, which I think has distilled some of that wisdom, Screw the Fairy Tale, is currently on sale and in the shed at the end of the yes. show. Great. That then brings me on to Naomi, Naomi Golder, who is the first on my left. Now, you are working at um, Professor Grading's new outfit, aren't you? The NCH, the New College of Humanities. And uh, you're an ethicist by profession, I understand, Naomi. Well, we could hear from you. And Anders, you're going to tell us whether, well, Cupid's darts have got oxytocin tips. Is that, is that what you're going to do? So we'll um, be coming to that a little later. And Anders uh, is uh, your James Martin Fellow, is that correct? Yep. Uh, to the um, Future of Humanity Institute in Oxford. So that's what we're going to do, and that's who we're going to hear from. What I'd like to do, if I can, when we start out then, is to really kick off with the fundamental question. I'm going to ask each of the three speakers to give me a three-minute straight pitch on exactly what they have as their answer to the question of love. What is this thing called love? And Helen, I wonder if you could start out. Well, as much as anyone else, I would love to find my rock, the person who will complete me, my other half. But sadly, don't shoot the messenger. I don't think this person can really exist. Or rather, it, they can exist, but not for very long, for reasons that I will come to. Now, I think in our society and in many other cultures around the world, we're governed by something which I call in my book the fairy tale narrative. This belief that if you meet your partner, all your problems will be solved. It's the ultimatum of life. It's the, it's the only route to happiness. You can see it in the language that we use. You know, people say things like, oh, he or she, she they've had such a bad time of late. I do hope they meet someone. You know, as if that's going to solve all their problems. Or they say, you know, the, the fact that we use the term settle down. Oh, 
She's settled down now. She's happy. It's almost like that's it. You know, life's over. As a, and this, this, I have an issue with this for two reasons. One, it implies that our life before we settle down was somehow unsettled. You know, not was it insignificant? And also, it me, does it mean that once we meet someone, the credits roll and that's it, and life's over? You know, you see in all the Hollywood movies, it's all about how the boy meets the girl, and then once they meet, the credits roll and it's game over, like they live happily ever, ever after. But what we know is that isn't always the case. Many people can be unhappy in a marriage or in a long-term relationship. Um, now, love is inherently human. I love falling in love. Who doesn't? It's arguably one of the biggest human highs of all. Who doesn't like that feeling when you meet someone and you really like them and they are the center of your universe? But sadly, this isn't really compatible with either our human nature and, in, and our society. And I'll tell you why. Firstly, let's look at anthropology. Some anthropologists um, have looked at the human mind when it's in love. Now, a leading researcher in this field is called Dr. Helen Fisher. Some of you may have heard of her. Uh, she's based in the States. She's dedicated her whole life to studying couples in love in brain scanners. It's absolutely fascinating. When she looks at couples that are in that honeymoon phase of romance, the bit of their brain that's lit up is the part of the brain which is um, the same area that's responsible for addiction. So essentially, a crack addict has a similar brain pattern to someone who's falling in love. And this explains why we become quite fervent. This explains why people can kill for romantic love. It actually makes us slightly crazy. But, you know, but we like it, and our brains are full of dopamine when we're in this stage. But what they also know is this doesn't last for very long. Uh, and there are evolutionary reasons why we develop this capacity as humans. So, Naomi, just if you could give us um, maybe your, your, a, a brief opener from your point of view. So, being here as a philosopher, I feel it's important to put forward one of the, the kind of founding fathers of philosophy view, and that's the view put forward by Plato in many of his works, including particularly the Dialogue the Symposium. And there we get a rather different view of love. Um, Plato suggests that uh, love is not something that's fleeting, particular, um, focused only on a particular person and that might disappear the next day, but rather love, although it might be sparked by a particular individual, it might it be sparked by a sort of physical drawer of the, for their body or something, as Plato would see. Um, ultimately, the proper object of that love is eternal characteristics. If you think about it, when you love someone, you would say you love them for various characteristics. I love him for his, uh, what would it be, sense of humor, for his kindness, for his good looks, whatever it might be, but you cite characteristics. And Plato thinks ultimately what that shows is that you don't love the particular, you love the universal. For Plato, that suggests the proper object of your love is the form of goodness itself, the eternal, repeatable, immutable thing. And that these particular people or institutions or, or objects that you might see around you that spark that passion are not the proper object of it. And I think that's very interesting because Plato shows that if you really want love to be eternal, you need its objects to be eternal. Therefore, he thought that philosophy was the proper act of love. It's an inquiry into the nature of beauty and goodness themselves. Thank you. 
beautifully put. Anders, so now I guess my job is trying to reconcile these views, <laughs> since I'm kind of pretending to be a philosopher and kind of pretending to be a neuroscientist. And it's worth recognizing why evolution produced something like love. Really, simple animals like a uh, wasp I was watching uh, outside uh, a bit earlier, they don't have love. They have a mating strategy. They have uh, the reflexes and programs to find somebody to have sex with and then produce offspring. But the problem is, of course, when you're a social animal, this gets much more complicated. You need to represent and keep track of uh, your partner, especially if rearing the young is a tricky thing that requires at least two individuals working together. They need to remember who they are. They need to actually figure out who the mate is among all the other seagulls on the rock or all the other mice in the field. So what happened was there was a binding system that developed. At first, in the mammals, it's important, of course, for the mother to keep track of her offspring. And it seems like it was accepted. It was generalized to also keep track of the mate. So those parts of the brain that light up when we see our loved ones overlap quite a lot of what happens in mothers when they see their children. Those dopamine parts are kind of a glue that glues us together and helps us learn who to, how to recognize a partner. Now, the interesting thing that happens with humans is that our kids are really hopeless at fending for themselves for many years. Put any baby in the forest and they don't hunt. It's very sad. They're really bad at hunting. <laughs> Their parents have to do it for them for years. And that means the parents need to stay together. And that is why we have added a lot of extra stuff. And our big brains allow us to think about our emotions and construct very elaborate cultural structures on top of that. And this is, of course, where we start abstracting things, realize that maybe I don't uh, love her just because of her looks, but because of her sense of humor or because she's great at Plato. So we create a lot of complications. But deep down, of course, there are neurons firing and chemicals moving around. So it's a giant edifice, originally with a foundation built by evolution. And then we have added stuff on top of it. Some of it universal, uh, because it's in all human culture. Some of it local to your culture or you, because you just made up that great reason why you're married. Thank you. <laughs> And as well, I'm sure we shall return very thoroughly to explore the, 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 the stuff on top. But coming back to you, Helen, right at the very heart of it, you said something very profound. You know, we, we need to maybe let go of a lot of our preconceptions and traditions, some of our romantic stories of love, perhaps. But your research has taken you to some very interesting places. Can I ask you, first of all, how your experience has actually brought you to that conclusion? Well, it's a case of chicken or the egg, isn't it? Did my mm. research bring me to my conclusion, or did I already have a... Um, you know, an issue with how we view love as a society and that's mm. why I did the research. Um, what I think and what the, the, the main reason why I went off and explored all these modern models of relationships, my book, was because I had a real issue with this belief that once you find love, it encroaches on your individualism and there is this expectation that you give everything for love. Now, I'm not saying... You know, I'm not being anti-love here. I think love is a brilliant thing, and I want to find it, and it is one of my life goals. But this idea that, you know, there's this expectation that you have to live together, that it will be lifelong if it's real. You know, people talk about a failed marriage or a failed relationship if it ends. So it's this idea I think we have in society that a successful relationship or a real relationship has to be cohabiting, it has to be monogamous, it has to last forever. And maybe we should read 
think that now in the modern world because we live such independent lives. I mean, for me, it was just the, the, the very thought of giving up my independence and my choice was what made me shy away from that conventional model of relationship. But can I ask, are there things that say happened in your research or in your life that like sort of pivotal moments in that discovery? Um, were there pivotal moments? Uh, in your field, field work, perhaps, for your book? Yeah, I mean, there were a few um, things which people said struck out to me. So, for example, I interviewed um, lots of lifelong bachelors, and one guy said to me that he, um, he almost got married, and he was engaged, and then he said, one day his parents said to him, you know, it's okay, you don't have to have children for us, you know. And he said as soon as he heard that, he felt this burden being um, released from him, and he realised that actually he'd been... He used the frame, phrase sleepwalking into marriage and he realised that actually that this wasn't what he wanted but he thought that there was this pressure both to please his parents and everything to do that. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that he, he doesn't want to meet someone he falls in love with but I do think that with our society now we live much more independently. We are, people now in their 20s and 30s are used to having so much freedom and independence that we need to adapt our relationship models to reflect that. And I just have one very quick point. There was a sociologist uh, called Michael Rosenberg who in the 60s was talking about this and he, he said, he called something the age of independence. He said we're, we're approaching an age of independence which he basically defined as people in their 20s and 30s were starting to go off to college, go travelling, starting to have independent lives. And he says this is going to cause a real change in relationships. People are going to start um, having shorter-term relationships because they're becoming more independent. And he was right, and that was in the 60s. Shorter-term relationships because the hormones are wearing off, Anders? Uh, that might be part of it, but uh, we should remember that uh, even economics affect divorce rates. Uh, when women become more economically independent, divorce rates tend to go up. If it's very expensive and uh, socially hard uh, to get a divorce, people actually don't get a divorce. But the interesting thing is, nobody who get, ever gets a divorce says, yeah, I did that because it was economically advantageous. Nobody ever says that. Uh, well, very few at least. Uh, <laughs> but the interesting thing is, some part of the brain might be reacting to that. And of course, we structure our lives in very different ways now. And it is true that in the evolution didn't make us st stay together forever. We might be getting back to this later, but. Uh, till death do us part is unfortunately very true if you're living in a cave in the Stone Age environment because it's really dangerous. Starvation and tigers and uh, other predators and disease are around the corner. So there was no reason for evolution to glue a couple together permanently because they wouldn't last more than maybe 10 years. If at that point the kids actually could hunt and fend for themselves, great uh, from the perspective of evolution. Uh, and of course, the widower, widower would then find a new partner. But now, it's very rare that uh, a big predator eats anybody in a couple in England. <laughs> uh, which means that we actually stay together for so long that now our biological programs start running down. The oxytocin levels uh, might be going down over time, and we drift apart. The kind of natural attraction and binding system might actually not be that strong over long spans of time. Not for everybody. There are, of course, beautiful exceptions. People have been together since absolutely forever and they're still just as much in love. But they are exceptions. 
Now, Naomi, your, your mm. research work is in ethics, isn't it? The mm. philosophy of ethics, mm. decision making and doing stuff. I mean, yeah. you know, how, how can you, have you, could you illuminate what Anders and Helen have said? In some ways, I, I feel sympathetic to the suggestion that, that our current models for relationships are um, unhealthy and in some sense are, are not really ethically good and that we are, we've inherited models of how to live our lives from culture, from the, the past circumstances that are very different from our own. Um, we probably don't question our morals, uh, the, the kind of conventional social morality enough. And I think if we did question it here, one thing that we might reflect on is that we actually have um, various notions of love that are rather different. One of them's more like companionship. One of them might be more like child rearing. One of them might be more like intellectual inquiry, common pursuits of, of uh, intellectual goals. One of them might be a more lustful sort of fashion. And, and we have somehow got a moral system that expects them all to go together. And that might be something we need to kind of separate out. Mm. Um, can I, can yeah. I add something Please. to that? Um, that that's, that's very um, relevant, what you say, actually, to what I've found in, in my research. Um, in that I think we have a, a drive, well, you know, scientists would back this up, separate drives for romantic love, which is the dopamine-fueled craziness, or the butterflies in the tummy, and long-term companionship, which is mainly when our, minds are, uh, our brains are flooded with oxytocin, the, the so-called bonding hormone. Now, as part of my research, I went undercover on a marital affairs website, Awful thing. <laughs> I don't recommend it. But anyway, it was very good for research. So there I donned a fake wedding ring and uh, met all these men who were deliberately setting out to seek an affair. Now, I hated the, uh, the intentional deceitfulness of them, but I also could really empathise in a way with why they were there. And the most striking thing that I found from these um, guys that I met, um, the the common denominator which they expressed was that none of them wanted to leave their wives, none of them were unhappy in their marriages, they also loved their wife, but they considered their home life, their, their domestic partnership as just that, as like their, their grounding, they, um, you know, this real close bond, but they still had this separate drive almost for the romantic love. And I'm not just talking about a sexual urge. They they really described um, feeling like they wanted to look forward to getting to know someone. They wanted the excitement. So I think th there is a separation between our drive for long-term companionship, our drive for the excitement of dating and early romance, and then thirdly, our drive for pure sex. That's very interesting. So, so just sum up, you seem to be saying then that our current ideas and behaviours we attach with love are about changing social mores and social cultural values on one hand, greater understanding of the brain is the other, and it seems therefore that life, love is becoming very fickle. But if we go back to say Romeo and Juliet, the greatest love story ever written, some would say, you know, Romeo is clearly madly in love with Rosalind, but beginning of, uh, of uh, the opening, but within what, one scene? <laughs> Bing, bye bye Rosalind, yeah. hello Juliet. You know, she's seen through the fish tank. Off it goes. So why is love so fickle? Anders? Well, I think in practice, uh, if you're living in a small community, love might actually not be that fickle because you're, it's going to happen on the stage. It's not going to be in the, done in secret if you're living in a small Stone Age tribe. Uh, everybody's going to know about everybody else's relationships and they're also going to partially have a say. What happens, of course, when you scale things up to the great city 
and you can hide uh, on the balcony and in the gardens and so on, is now you get much more individual say. And many of the things that otherwise would have worked against it would perhaps uh, also then they disappear. After all, Romeo and Juliet were terribly immature. It was not just that their families were in, uh, in conflict. It was probably also that maybe they would grow out of that in a few years. After all, they're both rather young teenagers at the time. However, we have created this environment now that allows us to some extent to be fickle. Uh, we have the websites where we can have affairs. We can hide in the anonymity of a big city. And we also have a long lifespan, which actually allows us to... We know to some extent that if it doesn't work with my first marriage, there might be more. So I think that freedom, at least at some part of our mind, is always aware that mm, there could be better fishes around. And that, of course, leads to this uh, problem, uh, given what you said. If we think that the most important thing is to get the best possible mate, there is a soulmate out there somewhere. Okay, uh, she wasn't my soulmate, she wasn't my soulmate. I probably should be trying more and more. So that might be driving a lot of mm. fickleness. But surely dopamine neurons were firing in the 15th century, weren't they? Mm. Yeah. Uh, but the dopamine is the thing that makes you fall in love. Do you stay in that state or do you either go into the, the, the companionable pair bonding or do you fall out of love? We should not forget that a lot of people have unrequited love. It's actually one of the main reasons for people getting into depression and health problems. And unrequited love is a terrible health hazard. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, it has been for a very long time. So, Naomi, is it a symptom or a cause? Well, I'm interested if the unrequited love is a symptom or, or a cause of the ill health. But anyway, sorry. I'm confident it is yeah. a cause, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's not uh, depressed people, they generally don't go around falling in love um, uh, very much. In general, uh, this might be because they have a social withdrawal. They actually dr withdraw from companionship, so they don't meet that many people. But I think also that they don't fall in love that much. But uh, in, a, in a bad case of heartbreak, that has really the same biological symptoms as losing a loved one. It's almost the same brain system probably that gets activated, that sense of loss, even though the other part was never a part of your relationship. Do you want to hear more from the world's leading thinkers? If the answer to that question is yes, subscribe to iai.tv for unlimited access to thousands of debates, talks, articles, academy courses and live events. Are you bored of the surface-level news, politics, sports and entertainment coverage on your newsfeed? Go deeper, get the philosophy behind the news and get the latest big ideas from the world's leading thinkers on subjects at the core of the human condition, life, the universe and everything in between. It's free for the first month and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level. As you can see. Um, yeah, I, I find that um, that fascinating, that, that sense of loss. And I think that um, it has also been compared with um, drug withdrawal because it is love is considered to be uh, an addiction, really. All the same centres of our brain are, um, are activated that are responsible for addiction. Um, again, just... I'm quoting Dr. Helen Fisher here, but it sounds like her research is very similar to yours. So apologies for that. But I interviewed her, and one of the things she said, she's the one that put all the couples in brain scanners. And, and I said to her, what can you do if, you've got, if you have got this unrequited love or if you are dumped and you've got this great big gaping hole from it? And she said, um, well, you know, you'll never know the reason. You've just got to make up a reason 
and stick to it. And that's the only way of um, getting over it. <laughs> it seems to me what you're saying then, that there are two sorts of love here at work. One, which is actually infatuation or heady, dizzying, mm. romantic love. Uh, and the other one seems a bit more platonic, you know, something more enduring and well, infinite. It, in a funny way, um, so, but I mean, we've seen the, the, the infatuation and then the kind of uh, long-term companionship commitment, that, that dichotomy. It's hard to know where to put Plato here, because although platonic love, it seems to be, you would naturally, the way it's used in normal conversation, it would be associated with a sort of friendship or companionship. Actually, that notion of eros, so, so Plato did distinguish between various different kinds of love, but for him, eros, the erotic love, which would be kind of translated now to be the more romantic or kind of infatuated love, for him was the one that um, led you to this, to turn your eyes upwards to the form of the good. So for him, it was really specifically infatuation that was, um, yes, fleeting when it comes to people, and so in that sense sort of looks unhealthy in some sense, but actually pedagogically in terms of our development our, and our own kind of growing understanding of the world and the, the, the kind of structure of reality, he thought it was really beneficial and illuminating. Uh, for Plato, Eros was, uh, had a very special place in his metaphysics, I suppose. It was what mediated between the particular kind of imperfect human fleeting world and the divine perfect uh, eternal um, world of pure beauty and goodness and for him eros was a kind of passion that is sparked off by something particular it's something visible you see a person or whatever but it it leads you leads your eyes upwards towards something that's that's perfect and so that's it's interesting you got the infatuation mixed with something that's more mm -hmm. disinterested uh, there's, al there's also um in the Middle Ages, they believed that extramarital love was a higher form of love than marital love. Right, marriage right. was something to be considered um, too important to involve romantic love. It was strategic, it was about inheritance, it was about building family ties, business ties. Even if you were in the working classes, it could simply be down to where your field is positioned. And everyone had a role in choosing who you married, you know, from, from the church to... Um, local councillors, it, it was a big strategic thing. And uh, fervent love, passionate love, was considered to be something that you conducted outside of marriage. And there was um, someone who said, I it was a philosopher called um, Seneca, I've no idea how you yeah. pronounce it, is that right? Yeah. Great, oh, great, right. <laughs> so he said, there is no man so dull as a man who is in love with his wife. And there's also, you know, in the church, um, the, the sin of idolatry um, is the act of loving God more than your spouse. I mean, and this was a theme, like, not just in our culture, but across all cultures. So in, uh, in ancient China, they believed that uh, you shouldn't love your spouse more than your family. That was a huge family betrayal. So marital love is a very um, modern concept, really. So it seems then, well, it seems like the, the Stoics and the Greeks are real party poopers. <laughs> <laughs> but it seems then you're saying then that this is really unachievable, unattainable. I mean, we're never going to reach platonic, the, the platonic heady ideals. Well, I think it was meant to be a perpetually unsatisfied but desire because Plato thought, I mean, that, that Socrates' whole thing was that the one thing he knew was that he knew nothing, right? So he never would know what true yeah. beauty and goodness were. But precisely because the desire for perfect beauty, goodness, whatever, would be perpetually unsatisfied, 
we can never quite grasp it. That's why love is eternal. It's mm. got this impossible uh, object. And in a sense, I think there's yeah. something to that. Uh, and it may has not very be the basis for a marriage. <laughs> yeah, it's not the basis for a marriage, probably. Okay, so yeah. And actually, it's uh, almost like uh, happily ever after. It's just as unattainable. But here, the point is that it's unattainable. Yeah. Happily ever yeah. after seems to suggest that there is an end point and it's perfect. Mm -hmm. Here, at least, you will never reach the end point yeah. uh, and you should be happy that you never reach the end point. So, can I suggest then that we throw away the end point? We throw away this idea of this unattainable thing and come unashamedly back to the dinner of the 21st century with yeah. speed dating and sleazy gentlemen on date lines and so on. <laughs> but just ask, what would happen if we just could free ourselves of this, as it were, <laughs> this, this straitjacket perhaps of the unattainable. And we just jumped in the deep end. Bye-bye romance, hello hedonism. I mean, would we be better off? Well, it depends on what you want to get out of your romance. I think we've seen that we have a kind of triangle here between sex, romantic love and that uh, infatuation, that intense emotion. And ideally, you, you might want your relationship to have enough of uh, all of them to leave you satisfied. But there are many uh, very successful combinations that lean more on one side, the corner of the triangle than others. Uh, so I think a lot of how our framing sh can change things. So I have a little personal story to tell. So I'm signed up for cryonics. So when I'm dying, uh, they're going to freeze me, and hopefully a few in, uh, the future might find a futurist from Oxford entertaining to revive if they get <laughs> enough technology, and I'm really lucky or unlucky. So when, during my wedding ceremony, the priest uh, looked at uh, this one when I was, uh, she was giving me the vows to swear. So my vow to my husband is, uh, ends, till death do us part, temporarily. <laughs> <laughs> and, Afterwards, my husband, who happens to be a lawyer, pointed out, Anders, you know that legally speaking, you will be dead when you get cryonically frozen. And that actually annuls marriage. <laughs> and I told him, dear Håkan, no problem, we can try again. <laughs> <laughs> and I think there is some truth to that. You can recognize that, yes, this might not be until the end of the universe. That's ridiculous. It might not even be to decades and decades. It's going to last as long as it lasts, and you try to be constructive about it. B because the important part of marriage is not whether it's going to end in divorce or in, uh, somebody becoming a widow, but actually that you're really happy together now and can maintain that well enough given your situation and your changing uh, commitments and needs over time. Yeah, so lasts as long as it lasts. Interesting yeah, idea. Yeah, I agree, Hello. I agree. I think Could that's you imagine, though, a happy culture that lives on that principle? Mm. I think we'd be a lot happier. I think it'd be better, better. yeah. We would, yeah, we would these contracts. Please, you know, I mean, that's just it. A, a, a marriage, really, is a contract, and I, I, it is something that was founded in a previous era when you sort of had to have a partner in order to survive, and you couldn't live on your own, and we didn't have Tesco delivery, you had to grind your own flour to make bread. You know, you, you pretty much <laughs> had to shack up with someone to survive. So um, now I think we, uh, letting love just flourish and reach its natural conclusion, because we do go through stages in life. We're not the same person that we are through every phase. And, and maybe if we just stopped putting, um, you know, a, a time frame on a relationship and stop thinking, is this going to last forever? Could they be the one? Could I spend my rest of my life with them? But just simply enjoying that person for as long as, you know, I do think, I think we are monogamous creatures inherently in that when we are in romantic love, when the dopamine's flowing, we are really just into that 
person. Well, I am anyway. You know, when you're into someone, you're into someone. Maybe we sh But are we really suited for lifelong monogamy? So maybe we're suited to long-term monogamy and long-term love, but not lifelong love. And very briefly, there's, um, you know, there are uh, anthropologists who argue that we develop this faculty for romantic love for the time that it takes to raise a child, because in evolutionary terms, it made sense for the parents to stay together until the, the offspring reached a relative age of independence, which was sort of seven, eight years, and perhaps that's why we have the so-called seven-year itch. Um, and, and certainly, you know, it does make sense to, yeah. um, to be together when you're raising children. Yeah. Biology echoing real life, interesting. Mm. But you were saying, Naomi, that mm. you felt this could work. Well, I, I mean, I do think in general that we should be reflecting on the kind of principles that are handed down to us from previous generations. And one of the principles that you should expect that um, somehow the relationship is failed if it ends before the end of your life. Um, I think we should reflect on that. And I think what some of the things have been saying today, we shouldn't see that as a failure. It might have been a wonderful relationship, but that doesn't show that it was somehow wrong if it ended. So I think that's interesting. But one of the things related to the kind of platonic vision would be that love fundamentally as an emotion or a passion is, um, for Plato anyway, was uh, um, ethically, morally, um, educational and uplifting. And so love was a force for the kind of general good it, it, of society, I suppose, as well as the individual. And I'm, I'm interested in if we divorce the notion of romantic love from the kind of child rearing and all that stuff, or kind of let it, yes. um, whether it, whether I don't know whether context. it may not, yeah, it mm. may be that somehow it will cease to have this connection yes. with kind of goodness, a broader kind of goodness for society. I mean, in the course of my work as a psychiatrist, mm. I see a lot of people mm. whose lives have been damaged by the parents busting up when they're long past that. Depend period of immature dependence. Mm. Anders, mm. what's your view on that? Uh, so I think one of the most interesting things about being in a relationship is that there are two people who are trying to learn about each other on a fairly deep level and stay together despite that. <laughs> uh, my husband and me have very different philosophies of cleaning, doing the dishes, and Evans <laughs> organizing files in the network. Oh. We, we're both nerds, and we both have very firm opinions about this. And now we have to negotiate this. How do we organize the file server? What are the views on security? And we need to understand each other, both emotionally and intellectually. And this process, I think, is making us better people because we actually learn a bit of compassion, we learn to see something from another person's point of view, because we have to. Being stuck with somebody actually has a, a bit of beneficial effects, which do, I think, rub off on our general social abilities. The problem is, of course, we need to make sure that this learning is constructive. The marriages that last long, they tend to renew themselves, that people come up with new ways of being in love with each other, as well as maintaining the core that actually made them uh, really feel good about it from the start. The pro this might be a bit like a lifespan. We want to live as long as we live, but some people uh, do everything we want to do in life, and then they don't want to go on, while others invent new things all the time. My grandfather, he became 80 years old, he had done everything he needed in life, and he more or less just weakened and died. 
My grandmother is 106 this year, and she's still pottering about because dying is simply not done. It would upset her social <laughs> calendar. <laughs> and, it's, and I think it's marriage so can be like that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. well, on that. On that rather heartwarming note, <laughs> dare I may say that eternally platonic note, I'd just like, if we can, just very, very briefly, if you just maybe sum up your argument in just one pithy sentence. I think if love was simple enough that we could sum it up in one pithy sentence, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Um, I, I think don't necessarily expect all kinds of love to come together. Um, and in particular, if you want eternal love, you might want to consider directing it at an eternal object. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, Heather. Um, I think we are very lucky to live in an era where we no longer have to compromise the bad relationship to find happiness. We have so much choice now, and it is perfectly possible to thrive alone or with a partner or with a same-sex partner or with ten partners or to live down the street from your partner that we should embrace that and not compromise when we don't have to. Thank you for listening to this Institute of Art and Ideas podcast. We wanted to let you know that in April we're hosting a weekend on love with debates, talks and workshops. Speakers include Anders Sandberg, Helen Croydon and many more leading thinkers. If you want to join us in the idyllic countryside of Hay on Wye, check out our events page at iai.tv.